Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. Today, I'm chuffed to be chatting with my good friend, Mark Eilif. For my American listeners, for our European listeners, for all the non-Brits, I need to just say here that chuffed is a good thing. It means I'm really happy to be chatting with Mark this afternoon. I've known Mark since he was a PhD student at Nottingham and possibly even a bit longer than that. He sat in a workshop that Jeremy Morley and I ran for non-geographers and then we cemented our friendship at an AGI conference over a large tray of flaming sambucas, forever since known as geobucas. Mark is now a geographer within the United Nations Statistics Division and the Secretariat of the UN Committee's Experts on Global Geospatial Information Management. So, Mark, first of all, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Ah, yeah. Thanks, mate. I mean, it's, uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller, so uh, very happy to be here. I'm very happy to have you. And if we get a bit of background noise... Just remember that Mark's in the metropolis of New York, and even with the windows closed, you get the odd siren. So listen out for the authentic New York detail in this podcast. Mark, start out by telling us a little bit about your journey from Nottingham to New York via East Africa. Yeah, well, I mean, it's (laughs) it's been an interesting one for sure, and very atypical. And, you know, I guess the journey for me uh, started a bit uh, a little before Nottingham, got into Leicester University, uh, which is my uh, my hometown university. Joined the Royal Naval Reserves, and then you know, ever since I was a kid, you know, I was thinking, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to join the Navy, see the world, and you know, one thing led to another. And two years after I'd started my bachelor's in in computer science, uh, I was studying computational mathematics on an exchange program in Nancy uh, in northeast France. I very much uh, used my education grant to the the best of its ability and bought a motorcycle (laughs) and, you know, ended up sort of getting lost. And it it sounds strange, but, you know, I, I would be using paper maps to get around and, you know, because I was sort of really interested in navigation and, and maps. I, I started contributing to OpenStreetMap with, you know, Garmin GPSs, being part of that that sort of nascent OpenStreetMap community back then. Uh, and coming from a computer science background, uh, you know, I ended up interning with Steve Coast, CloudMade, just, just before and then after they got funding. So I was trying to write, you know, rooting engines uh, with OpenStreetMap data. Um, wow. Really sort of got interested in, in geo as a field and gone to do a master's in geospatial engineering. Here, I guess, sort of went into a really sort of weird turn where I was studying under a professor of liminology, so a professor of freshwater lakes. Who oh, was thank look- you for explaining that. <laughs> no, <worries. laughs> uh, who, who was looking at the the lake uh, the lake system in the Rift Valley uh, in Kenya, and he had a problem that he thought that I could help him fix, uh, which was looking at the migration of flamingos or Phenacopterus minor, as they're like <laughs> known in their Latin term. So I I went to count flamingos for about three months, you know, see how well they could be used as a proxy for water quality. So a lot of that was image recognition and pattern recognition across the lakes. So take a photo, run the algorithm, 
and then count how many flamingos there were. So, you know, as part of that, I had to learn how to count flamingos. And yeah, wrote, wrote a paper on it. You were actually doing that as image recognition. So taking the pictures and then using an algorithm to identify and count the birds. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It's like real stuff just with flamingos. Um, and, you know, it, it was... Um, it was it was a real experience because it wasn't just the work it was you know everything around that and you know in up in Lake Bagoria you you could go anywhere in central Kenya and you know I ended up going into Naivasha and Nakuru and you know you just have these amazing experiences uh, speaking to to these great people who you know you'd be embarrassed by their hospitality as they ask you to sit down with them break bread with them and you know you just have these experiences that you just don't have on the streets of leicester you know i, I remember sort of having niachoma for the first time uh, which is this like type of barbecued meat and you know a friend of our of mine from leicester were sort of unless you knew we're by the side of the road and um at this restaurant i suppose you'd call it uh they had a fire pit and we say you know we'd like some niachoma please and guy goes well how much do you want we say i don't know like a pound pound off and he goes okay great and yeah we just heard this most blood-curdling scream coming from behind the shack uh you know <laughs> you know like five minutes later the the chef come butcher sort of walks with this like leg of goat over his shoulder and yeah i was really good <laughs> you know like, it's like, pretty fresh as well not and, quite like the kebab shop in leicester n- no i mean it's a different spice profile but you know I, i'd like to think that the basic elements on the rub and the you know the terroir of creation are still there but it's it's, it's just interesting because like you really see the sort of the the, the baseline you know, without getting too sort of poetic, like the baseline of humanity that, you know, you've got these people that are living in the, these conditions uh, and just, you, you just meet interesting people. Like, I remember sort of hitchhiking around in these lorries, which, you know, is something I have no idea how I had the confidence to do at the time or stupidity, I suppose. But, you know, I'm sitting in this lorry cab with these two guys uh, from Somalia who are heading from a place called Adawasa in Ethiopia. And they'd been up for like two, three days as we got talking and they've been chewing this cat, which is, it turns out is this, like illegal drug stimulant leaf oh yeah and they were just they were you know just really fun guys didn't really speak you know my somali's pretty grim their english was you know a lot better than my somali but not great but we were able to communicate you know sharing experiences and telling stories over like warm coca-cola and you know i remember when i was coming into nairobi i thought you know i'd been happy just to have been dropped off on the outskirts and i'd take like a bus into town but they were very insistent having made a new friend of like we'll drop you off where you need to go so they're driving this like 18 wheeler massive truck into central nairobi and just going you know <laughs> you know which, where where on the ungong road do you want to be okay so your PhD was based on the work you did in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. How did that come about and how did it connect with your early experiences in Kenya? Yeah, so I really love conferences. And, you know, I think that with our current COVID situation, we're missing them a lot as well. But at State of the Map in Limerick, 
in 2008, uh, I got talking uh, with this guy called uh, Mikel Maron and, you know, we kept in touch and he was looking at how OSM could be used in, in other communities sort of outside the tr- then traditional sense uh, of the word. And he, he happened to be in Kenya in the same time I was out there. So, you know, I sort of packed into my, my research, like spending some time with him and helping out with Map Kabira basically trying to sort of help his his and uh, what then became his wife's trying to map Kabira with the community and, and that eventually grew uh, to mapping Mathare and other slums in Nairobi and you know it, it wasn't paid work I was sleeping in a tent in a hostel in the time which was sort of very strange but you know, we were trying to do this stuff in 2009, 2010, about three years before, you know, what is now the, the placeholder for this community, humanita- Humanitarian Open Street Map team, you know, aka HOT, uh, existed. And thinking about it, like the Haitian earthquake in 2010 sort of kickstarted the awareness of Open Street Map as a tool for humanitarian purposes and, you know, responding you know, to acute issues and providing the map yeah. data for those sorts of things in a way of sort of getting people to digitize from home. But, you know, when that you're doing really it... was really a pivot point, wasn't it? I think, you know, that that Haiti earthquake and the response of the armchair mappers and the fact that it worked so brilliantly, you know, I think that was a pivot point for OpenStreetMap. No, completely. And, you know, that this is where, you know, I think posing the question, like, not just what can it be now or like what what can it be in the future is really important and there's the more acute issues like an earthquake response but there's also sort of more chronic issues so around a billion people around the world live in a situation where they don't have access to formal land rights or they live in slums or a column of uh, you know a combination of the two so you know what they don't have access to a toilet which i'm sure we'll mention in a minute (laughs) i'm sure you will too um (laughs) you know so you've got all of these these problems that you know mapping data and geospatial information can solve but there was a a question of like how do you transform the state of governance to to enable that you know how do you sort of get that data to make sense in government and how do you enable the collection of that data by citizens to improve their lot and you know among other things that i know we're going to come to later personally at that time you know, I was at a bit of a crossroads. I wanted to sort of continue doing community mapping, but, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, unfortunately, I couldn't, you know, do things on a purely volunteer basis. You know, I needed a job. And this PhD, you know, the University of Nottingham's Horizon Research Centre, which specialised in researching this sort of rather nebulous topic of the digital economy, came around. I applied for it and proposed a research question to sort of look at the methodology practices and community mapping and you know working out how to empower people to create produce and then use the data and maps to improve their communities and you know use the geospatial information as sort of that integrative piece between people and where they live and governments and the area in which they govern at all levels whether it's a national government or a, a low level and you know it's it's really strange sort of looking back on it and seeing how my career's gone, but it, that that's sort of been the sort of concurrent thread of like how do you how do you make geospatial information make sense to to people regardless of of where they are in society, the actor that's there. So also, you know, I figured if it was all going to go wrong, I could just go back to the navy. So it was a, a useful <laughs> thing to explore, and you know, it's 
it felt really like playing in a Vegas casino that some of the earlier stuff, especially with the Masters, the Flamingos and Map and then Map Kabira were were shots to nothing. And, you know, I, I knew that I was young and you know, I figured that, you know, let's play a bit of a play the edge case a bit, you know, let's be a bit risky and, and try to do something that would actually be useful as opposed to just going through the motions. And yeah, I'm really glad that I did. And so how did that get you out to Tanzania? So it was really sort of fun. When I was, you know, my first year of my PhD, my supervisors like consistently went, oh, you had a great research question, but you know, now's the time to buckle down and focus on something else. And they did a bit of their research and said, well, you know, you should be looking at like Bayesian trust models for social media and then use that to make maps of trust based on what's going in social media. And I, I hated it. I, I mean, it, I, I didn't, I, you know, I, I saw it as a, as an academic exercise. Uh, I'm choosing my words very diplomatically there. And, and I didn't see it had any real, real relevance and with hindsight we know it doesn't work well i mean yeah i mean the the great thing is i'd like to think i had foresight to say it didn't work either you know (laughs) you know but you but the maths was there like there was a research problem there and i think other people have come along and and solved the research but there is sort of a to, to what point and you know within my first year annual review i was really really sort of coming to a point of, well, maybe this PhD wasn't the way forward. But, you know, Mikel sort of approached me to to supervise a community mapping project for the World Bank, which would be the first one they'd ever done, uh, based in Dar es Salaam. And uh, the idea was to sort of bring together community members and who really understood the challenges in their communities and university students that had the technical skills and knowledge and, you know, bring them together to help do the knowledge transfer of, of the mapping skills for community members to identify the informal areas and trash sites, you know, has it historically flooded in your area, you know, to try to predict what happened next. And, you know, we're trying to sort of facilitate the creation of multi-stakeholder groups. So the knowledge and voices of those community members could then be captured and then presented on a map while giving you know that, that country's next generation of geographers, surveyors and, you know, geo peeps with skills and experience, which was something they didn't really have before. And as a project, Romani Hiri, uh, Romani Tandali, sorry, uh, was about $35,000. You know, we trained 20 community members, 25 university students, and mapped an area of about one and a half square miles. And, you know, this was an area that was, you know, known to be the biggest slum in the city. It was entirely informal, but it was critical to the city's economy. It held the major clearing market. So all the fruit, all the veg would go through Tandali effectively. One of the big problems with that is that when it floods, and it did frequently, it was always in danger of wiping out that market. So, you know, you'd see these cascading effects sort of knock on to the system of the city. And and we were trying to map it to both empower local citizens to to enable more agency around their community and then have that agency seen by local government officials national government officials the world bank donor agencies to kickstart a conversation on how they can sort of come together and you know really make positive actions that are inclusive of everyone in that society as opposed to just a certain few 
And, you know, the traditional World Bank or, or national government project would say, look, we're going to put a market here or we're going to put a bus station here. And, you know, that'd be normal, like a bit of consultation, but it wouldn't be extensive. So we were really trying to, yeah, we're trying to do something a bit more. And when I came back from that experience, you know, I, I spoke to uh, Geomob Pod number 42, a.k.a. Uh, Jeremy Morley, and um, he he listened. You know, my supervisors at the time did listen, but I don't think they truly understood it. But Jeremy did. and I think know, it helped that Jeremy had worked before with Mookie, yeah. Mookie Hackley, and Mookie had been doing research into OpenStreetMap for several years before Jeremy moved from UCL up to Nottingham. So he got the, he got the stuff really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was the sort of the good thing. I mean, it's really good that you mentioned Mookie because, I mean, he was also my examiner and, yeah. you know, my, my thesis was effectively built off the fact that he said that this could never happen in Africa uh, in one of his papers, I think, from 2009. (laughs) Yeah, no, I wouldn't recommend that approach to any PhD student, you know, building a case of why an eminent professor in a field is wrong and then asking them to examine your thesis. That was was an uncomfortable exam. But, you know, (laughs) he he was all right about it and he, he agreed. And it's, you know, like just sort of looking back at it it's you know like i i i was really new into all of that you know i was coming from like a programming like hyper technical background and you know really what was required here was systems thinking and design and sort of socio technical human interaction and really meant that i needed to truly research sort of how this all came together and you know i realized that there's no stronger zealot to a cause than a convert which I, I guess why I became very passionate about these things. And, you know, a few weeks later, I was invited uh, to attend an interview uh, with the World Bank uh, for a 15-day consultancy uh, to distill the experiences of Romani Tandali and look at how we communicate the potential of geography and geospatial information into sort of a broader, more strategic guidance to the, the portfolio projects and lending operations within the country. And yeah, the team I joined in 2011 was was three people. I was the junior guy. And then over six years, when I finished 15 days of consultancy, that became 20, then 100, then 150. The, the work that we started doing really started to shift sort of how the World Bank engaged with data, I think, that, you know, we... We didn't work in Asia. Uh, I I pretty much kept my work to Africa, but they clearly read our reports um, and you know kicked off a project in Asia called Open Cities. Uh, that project's you know from uh, the Global Facility for Disaster Reduction and Recovery uh, (GFDRR) came to Africa about five years ago and um, you know kicked off there in twelve cities. So you know a lot. It, it sort of mushroomed from there and. You know, all the while in Dar, we we kept trying to proceed along, and you know, we we started with Romani Tandali, trying to map around a hundred thousand people. Twenty fifteen, we managed to get a project together that was funded by a variety of sources to map about one point two million people, and then we slowly built that up to cover Dar es Salaam, which is around five six million people. Put that into uh, something called the Tanzania Urban Resilience Program, which went out to other cities in Tanzania and Zanzibar, and that project's still running today, uh, and it's scaling up in other sort of more 
you know, less primary cities, but also secondary ones to sort of capture that sort of synthesis of community knowledge and skills building for students. Uh, the Resilience Academy of Tanzania is also use, uh, using that approach, which is, I believe, a collaboration with the World Bank, University of Turku, uh, UK's DFID and other partners. And yeah, we, we were trying to pioneer, I guess, sort of what geospatial could do uh, in international but at the same time, you also pioneered really engaging with a grassroots local community to enable them to shape priorities. And that's gone much wider than just geospatial, you know, which must be enormously satisfying, you know, that, I mean, listening to you now, I'm sort of thinking, well, why weren't they doing that anyway? But I mean, obviously they weren't, you know, and I mean, it's the classic white Western European know-it-alls fly in, yeah, it's, yeah. it's what it's pigeon management. Fly in, squawk a lot, shit on them, and move and fly out again. And you know, you change that, which is incredible. Um, well, yeah, we call I'm it dropship development. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we could talk about your time in Tanzania for ages. And yeah, yeah. I'd love to do that. But if we do that, we're not going to get to talk about your your arrival in New York. So, how did you get from Tanzania to New York? It was a case of working out what to do next. You know, I was really privileged to build a team out in Tanzania. Oh, yes, one of the things that I'm really sort of happy, you know, happiest with is is less the outputs of the work, but just seeing a team, you know, that you you recruit grow and then go on and do amazing things. And there was a point where I think I'd built the team up to have the skills and the knowledge to navigate not just the local system, but also, you know, use the bank and you know be consultants within the bank so it was a time that it was you know time to end i guess so i saw an opportunity within the statistics division to support the the three other uh, secretaries of the the secretariat for the committee of experts on global geospatial information management and uh, i applied for the post and you know unggim is the you know what they say is the apex intergovernmental mechanism for joint decision making and setting directions with regard to the production availability and use of geospatial information effectively and in english uh well it's basically the heads of national uh, mapping agencies and national geospatial agencies and getting them together to help develop frameworks standards processes methodologies to promote the use of geospatial information so you know unggim has different working groups ranging from the subcommittee on geodesy expert group on integration of statistics and geospatial information or its working group on geospatial information for improving sustainable development and you know i guess sort of in a you know green topics aren't they i mean i'm sitting here thinking you know if i was younger and i was a a geographer, GI professional, those are the things I really want to be working on, you know, the things that can make a massive global difference. Um, yeah, and it's it's really strange because simultaneously, I, I'm not sure I'd do anything all day and then sort of stuff... <laughs> I'm sure you don't. <laughs> stuff percolates out uh, and then you're like, oh, okay, that was good. Um <laughs> And you know, like for fans of Yes Minister, in the note, in the feeling that I'm, you know, I am already Bernard and potentially proceeding towards Sir Humphrey. You know, like <laughs> there's this sort of cycle of you know, get mandate, build the membership, establish leadership of the countries, 
you know, write the terms of reference, aka why you're doing it, you know, make the work plan, you know, how, what, who's doing it, communicate that to your group, consult with people on the work, gain consensus on whether your work's any good, and then deliver the mandate. And, you know, that could be a framework that sort of provides key principles and, and elements to integrate statistics and geospatial information, i.e. the global statistical geospatial framework. Or it could be saying, well, you know, we need to use geospatial information and earth observations and satellite imagery for sustainable development. And then, you know, that comes in as a roadmap, as an SDG geospatial roadmap. And, it, you know, it's working with nominated experts of countries to help de develop these documents. And sometimes they're quite short. Sometimes they're 50 pages, but, you know, you, you spend a lot of work as the, as the secretariat trying to sort of bring these, bring these groups together and provide a bit of structure. And, you know, so it's, I, so my inbox this morning job. is, you know, Aman spoke to the US Census Bureau, stuff off to, to parts of Asia, and I've got stuff that I, that's come in that I need to send back to Mexico. So you, you just consistently yeah. sort of churning around so basically your job could be described as herding geospatial cats yes fine with okay. with different that languages was, yeah with different languages so in the tower of babel yeah. um, so from what you're telling me mark i'm guessing that you don't actually do any gi anymore you're just a policy nerd uh, yeah, no, you'd be you'd be surprised i mean occasionally you do have you made a map in the last three months i have Oh, I, right. I have, yeah. No, back it's, off, back off quickly. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, it was a map of which countries contributed to a consultation. Oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it was equal really good. Equal Earth projection or WGS eighty four? Uh, it was an Equal Earth projection. It oh, was good. following all the guidelines set out by Administrative Instruction two one one of the Secretary General on regarding yeah. the production of maps. And I'm really proud because <laughs> I, I had to look at what UN Blue was. So the countries yeah. that responded were UN Blue. That was that was yeah. uh, my Vildian uh, contribution to cartographic styling. But yeah, so, no, I, I do mostly policy now, yeah. but I enjoy the technical stuff too. And do you have a special UN set of country boundaries that you use for producing maps like that? Uh, yeah, I use whatever the cartographic department provides, but that's, very, a, <laughs> that's an entirely separate part of the institution. I know, <laughs> I know. And um, I was... Um, I'm just reminded of when um, Kenfield and I gave a keynote at the conference in Dar es Salaam that you organised. And yeah. at the end of it, I think it was your boss, um, the head of the statistics division of the UN, came up to us and we had a chat with him afterwards. And he said, and we'd shown all these maps of sustainable development goals being mapped on a, on a world canvas. And he said, we can't do that. And I asked him why. And he said, we can't do that because we can't get agreement on the country borders. Yep. Um, yep, no, that's right. and, yeah, it wasn't and my I boss. I suddenly realised how contentious just that simple subject was. Wasn't no, it was. Boss? No, it wasn't my boss. It's one of my colleagues, uh, Luis Gonzalez-Morales, oh, right. uh, right. that, that was doing it. And you know, I, I guess sort of, you know, he is an exemplary person of the people I work with. And, it, you know, really is a privilege to be there because, you know, he he cares about 
the statistics for development and providing providing that data. And I, I think that what what was really really great about that presentation at Phosphor G twenty eighteen was just seeing how that data can be used and how it you know just two guys trying to sort of make a humorous point can turn into something that's really phenomenal. Yeah, and yeah, I and mean, I've got to tell great. you that that data was an absolute bastard to work with. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and when you talk about sort of the standards for statistics, I absolutely, inside me, the geek in me is cheering like mad because trying to conflate that kind of stuff, getting the data from 190, 200 countries, it's just a nightmare, you know, and I mean, you know, the non-reportings and people... Yeah, and the, the fact that you know that you get 50 countries reporting on the same statistic, like um, girls in secondary education, and you absolutely know that they're going to interpret those figures completely differently across the world, you know, and that there'll be no comparison, possibly agreement about who's a girl and who's a boy. But beyond that, there'll be no comparison between what's being recorded in Vietnam and what's being recorded in Bolivia, for example. You know, just, and I'm not saying those two countries in any negative way, just to give an example of how different things can be. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it, and that's one of the things that, you know, we're trying to sort of work on and, and clarify, you know, within this like massive indicator framework of the sustainable development goals, like providing, you know, consistent methodologies for producing the indicators and, you know, using geospatial information is, is really one of the key ways to, you know, reduce the complexity on on that and provide a bit of you know standard way of understanding things and i think that's always going to be a force for good i actually i mean one thing i would say as a sort of amateur geographer myself is that when i worked on the statistical part of that presentation that ken and i did i came away with the conclusion that actually it was bullshit mapping this stuff because there are no spatial patterns to the data. There's an obvious pattern that many of the indicators are less favorable in Africa than they are in Europe. But actually what you're seeing is many of the indicators are less favorable in the poorer countries in the world, right? And then you get these old outliers, whether wherever it is, there's an outlier. And actually, I mean, what I came to the conclusion was that you didn't get much from looking at a map. But what you were looking for was the regional outliers, which, if you could find out what they were doing that was different to everybody else, that might give you some sense of what was best practice and could you transport that best practice from one country or one region to another. But, you know, looking at maps which just boringly showed Africa's, Africa's low, some of South America is low, India's low doesn't really help you you know what it tells you is that these are countries that have lower you know have low income per head yeah but i mean definitely looking at a regional level is useful when it comes to mm. sort of identifying the outliers but if you think of the the amount of stages and stuff that comes to just produce an indicator the fact mm. that there is an ability to produce it is showing that there's some level of machinery behind it which shouldn't necessarily discount the, the results, you know, irrespective of how much it is different or not comparatively amongst the countries. So, 
you know, I, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of value, and you know, I think the SDGs as this sort of big monolithic hammer. You know, there there is a lot of room for improvement, but also you know, getting countries to think about data and you know, using that as a as a hook into using data for decision making is really really useful. I agree. So I'm conscious of time, and I knew, and in fact, I said to you before we started, Mark, that yeah. we were bound to run over. <laughs> um, so penultimate question for you: What impact would you like your work at the UN to have? And over what time frame? Oh, I mean that's a toughie. And you know, like in the in the in the notes before, you know, that was probably the one that I had the most issue with. I mean, I, I guess simply, I'd like for someone to take the work that we do and use it. Like, and if if a country is sitting down and using it, then that's good enough. That, then that's okay. that's what I'd like. You know, and that sounds like that sounds like a really good objective. And that's a time frame. And that's in a short time frame. Because one country using it in 2020, five countries using it in 2021, 10 countries using it in 22, that would be a, a great start, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've had you know countries that have taken the global statistical geospatial framework, which is basically five principles for getting geospatial into statistics, giving it a location, making sure you can put it in a higher geospatial hierarchy of geographies or in a gridded way and spitting it out in a way that doesn't sort of stop privacy and confidentiality concerns. And, you know, there are some of these countries that have, have used it uh, in integrating data for their COVID-19 response. And, you know, when you get an email saying, you know, thanks very much, this is really useful work, we've used it to do X, Y, and Z for our country's response, like that's that makes it all worth it but you know to stress it's the work of the countries you know i we're 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 herding the cats to a point and but it's the countries that are doing the the long work on the best practice and pulling it all together so fantastic so often when we've got time i ask my guests on this podcast to give me a topic that they want to talk about and i know that even though we're running late you've got a topic that's very close to your heart that you wanted to talk about. So um, I'm very personal as well. So go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, this is really weird. I mean, a couple of people that follow me on Twitter about a month or so ago saw me sound off about this, but I have depression and that's been something that's been really hard to sort of come to terms with to a point where you can just articulate it. And, you know, when I was uh, trying to uh, chair Phosphagy 2018 in Dar es Salaam, it was just exhausting. And uh, it it broke me in more ways than one. You know, you, you start to have this sort of, instead of this narrative inside your head of a, everything is fine, you know, or, you know, something's a problem. It just becomes this all-encompassing cloud. And yeah, like after 2018, 2019, you know, I like to say that actually my 2020 is going a lot better now than 2019 because it was just absolute hell because you you're trying to do your job and you just feel sort of incapable of doing it and now I look back at the stuff that I was doing and the stuff that I was churning out and it was actually pretty good I just didn't have any perspective on it at the time you know I've had this conversation with colleagues friends of ours uh, mm-hmm. since and you know it just seems that this is something that we're not talking about because other people are having it too and the way that I have you know got better and feel better about sort of depression and the level of mental illness is is by talking about it. And I think right now where we're 
deliberately kept away from people. Uh, we're deliberately, we're, we're put in lockdowns or quarantines or however you want to define it, that reaching out is more important than ever before. And Absolutely. I think it's, you know, it's something that you and, you know, you and Ken Field did for me the other week after some cockwomble stole my motorcycle uh, was, it's, it's those moments where you're like, oh, I'm a, I can deal with this and I'm okay. And I feel like that now through, through talking about it with friends. Yeah. But, but you can't do it on your own. You can't. You no, really can't. I mean, nobody can do it on their own. You have to reach out. And those of us who either aren't or don't feel that we are experiencing depression have to be open to having those quite uncomfortable conversations with our friends and being able to listen to them and feed back to them, which also isn't easy. You know, I mean, I can remember conversations you and I had which weren't comfortable. Um, mm. But you've got to, you know, so it's... You know, it's for everybody. It's not just for people who feel in need, you know, who are feeling depressed. It's for their friends to actually be able to be open to have those conversations with them, which is right. No, no, exactly. And it's it's really interesting, like the conversations that I thought would be the hardest were the easiest. That, you know, turning around to, I've always been really fortunate to have just phenomenal bosses, you know, with Edward Anderson down in Tanzania and, you know, now, you know, Greg Scott in the Secretariat. and you know, having the conversation with my bosses here was the hardest thing because it felt like I was letting someone down. When I was speaking to my my parents about this, uh, it felt like I was letting them down as well. And, you know, I'd never received just, it, everything's fine, you, you're going to be fine. And, I, you know, it was a real sort of clear example of leadership. And that just made it easier talking to my friends about it. And, you know, now talking like this and, you know, if people disagree with me, if people think they should, I should keep my thoughts to myself, then, you know, you're, you're welcome to your opinion. But, you know, this is, a, it's been a real problem for me and I know it's been a real problem for my friends. So, yeah. Yeah. There you go. And thanks for sharing that, Mark. And on your behalf, I want to say, if there's anyone listening who's feeling a bit low, just reach out. You know, I mean, reach out to whoever, but just reach out because... A problem shared is definitely a problem halved. Yeah. Mark, that's been a fantastic talk. We've ranged far and wide, and there's so much more we could talk about. I'm going to ask you one last closing question, which is, you've been to a few Geomobs, quite a few Geomobs. You've spoken at Geomob once or twice as well. Yeah. What was your, what's your favourite moment from a Geomob? I think I know what it's going to be, but I want to wait and see what you come up with. I really want to guess what you think it's going to be, but I don't think we may have the time for that. I love geography with a passion, and my favourite moments are when people such as yourself, such as Gary Gale, uh, Lawrence Penny. You know, I remember this this one presentation by Anna Butler on creating a, a handcrafted map of London. No. I love the talks where it's about the love of geography and how that love sort of instantiates itself through that individual you know because of lawrence penny's geomob talk i bought a book on the maps of ptolemy right. you know because of gary gale's sort of map of swear you know map of rude place names like i've actually been to a few of them you know intercourse in pennsylvania is is very close to me <laughs> and it's just truly hilarious um yeah. so 
you know, it's it's that love of geography, and and that's I know that's not necessarily the answer you were looking for, but no, it's not. And I'll give you what I thought you were going to come up with because I think it's one of my all-time favourites. Is Ivor Gayton? He gave a talk at a GeoMob. I think it was in the British Computer Society, and it was they built um they had a, a do-it-yourself drone. Yep. which was built out of parts that you could buy from Maplin and various sources. And they open-sourced all the designs so that anybody could build these drones that they were using for humanitarian mapping. And he's talking about this drone, and next thing, in a room with no more than a 10-foot high ceiling, he's flying the drone over the audience um, at this in, in the British Computer Society. And it was just... An absolute disaster waiting to happen, which fortunately didn't. But it's that's what I thought you were going to talk about because of all your fun and games with drones in Tanzania. But maybe we can have a another chat sometime in the future about drones and the things you've done with drones and the potential that they've got. Because I think uh, actually we we're not talking about drones enough. Mark, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on this GeoMob podcast. If you want to get in touch with Mark, he's at Mark Eilif on Twitter. I'll put his contact details in the show notes so you'll be able to find them in the show notes. Mark, thanks very much. Have a great day. Thanks, Stephen. Have a great day yourself. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Freifogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.